Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clockwork CIO podcast. I'm the host, James Williams, and today's guest is Jennifer Murphy, founder and CEO of Runa Digital Assets. Runa is a leading digital asset manager that specializes in liquid token investing using a fundamental value-driven approach. Thank you very much for joining today, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to see you. Thanks, James. I'm excited to be here. So let's dive straight into the first uh, of my questions, uh, Jennifer. Leadership philosophy. How would you describe your approach at Runa Digital Assets in the in your view? First, collaborative. Uh, we do. We have a small team of five. We do everything together as a team. <laughs> Even so, everyone is involved in. Uh, the investment process and the operational process, the client service process. So um, that's a big that's a big hallmark. And I think the kinds of people that tend to want to be entrepreneurs with uh, in digital assets, I think, want to be want to have that sort of involvement. So um, collaboration is huge. Uh, storytelling is big. I think storytelling is big in investing. <laughs> I think narrative is a huge part of investing. And uh, I tend to tell a lot of stories to the team. Um, I think, you know, most people could tell you the plot of the movie. Uh, it's a wonderful life or the sound of music or the Martian, uh, but they, they don't know, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, basics of, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights in the United States, for example, or something. And I think that's in part because our brains are primed for stories, not for um, lists of things. So um, so I think storytelling is big uh, in leadership and in other things. And then the last thing I would say, James, is balance. We're really looking for, uh, you know, when I was younger, um, our firm hired a personality testing firm to come and spend time with us. The head of the firm walked in the room. I was with my my small team. I was a young manager. And he said, Jennifer, we've never met, but let me tell you about you. And he proceeded to tell me in great detail about me and about my members of my team that I knew well. Very different, very distinct profiles and exactly right. And I thought, man, this is <laughs> this is really good. And that profile was based on um, basically four things that people need to take action, to have structure or to make structure, to connect with other people and to think about things. And it just sort of laid everyone out in terms of their how, how much they need to and like to do those things. And so part of what we're trying to do on our team is look for people that balance each other and also like operate ourselves in a way that balances each other. So, uh, for example, I hate structure, but there are others on my team that love it and need it. And so <laughs> they provide the structure. <laughs> so um, so I think that balance is really important. Uh, where did that idea come from to bring the personality testing firm in? Was that did that come out of a just a, a discussion with your colleagues or how did that arrive? <laughs> My first boss, Bill Miller, um, who's a, kind of a famous money manager at Lake Mason, uh, but he wasn't famous when I first joined him in 1986. He was uh, just becoming uh, famous soon thereafter, but he was very committed to intellectual diversity. And that was well before diversity was really a big topic. And what he was looking for were different points of view, different inputs. And um, he thought this personality testing was be a way to help promote that. But also one of the things that comes with diversity, as we all observe, is um, conflict. Because when you get a lot of diverse points of view and people with diverse backgrounds, you, you get uh, some friction with that as well. And so he was looking for a way to understand each other better. So we literally had our profiles, you know, displayed on our desks, if we if you wanted to. Um, and it was very helpful in, in sort of understanding, this is what I need to make sure I'm doing with her or him or whomever, uh, so that I, you know, I'm sort of meeting their meeting their needs, and and so that stuck with me, and it really it really seems to work. Yeah, I think it's uh, just that awareness that when you're leading a team, everybody's different, of course, and, and just just knowing, you know, what buttons to push. That are going to get the best out of your your colleagues, and that that 
what's good for one is not necessarily good for the other. It almost sounds obvious, but I don't even know to what extent that's even really being done, certainly across the financial industry, but I think it's invaluable. No, I think you're right. I, and I had many bad personality tests that taught me nothing. So I think that sours a lot of people. But like one great point uh, on what you just said is we we have our own ideas about what's respectful. So, for example, I don't like to be told what to do. You can tell me what you want to achieve. And then I'll I like to figure out how to do that, what to do. So if you tell me I want you to do it in this way on these steps, I'm I feel like, well, <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> That seems very disrespectful to me. Um, but there are other people, to other people, they, it's the opposite. They feel only like you're you're respectful if you tell them, here's what I want. I want, you, you know, some, some people want you to be very direct. And um, so they know how to do what you're asking um, and how to meet your expectations. And so that was a revelation to me. I didn't know there was a difference you know, in how people wanted to operate. So there, I think there are lots of examples like that. No, that's great. Uh, would there be any principles, quote unquote, Jennifer, that, that you would also ascribe to, to helping how you think about leadership and, and how you apply that day to day? Would there be anything that, that you would refer to that, that uh, really kind of helped shape you and your approach to, to running Runa? I think... I wish there was a, you know, a book or a simple, you know, but for me in reflecting on it, thinking about my conversation with you today, I realize most of my leadership um, conclusions or, um, you know, learnings came from what, from observation, from watching people. Um, so I, I worked with Bill Miller for many years. He's a great investment leader. Um, I, I worked with Chip Mason at Leg Mason. He is uh, just an amazing entrepreneur, entrepreneurial leader, um, Kyle Legg, a great uh, institutional investment leader. Um, so I, by, I feel like I learned a lot more by watching them handle especially difficult situations. That's where most of my, I guess, learnings came from. Um, so I think people may not uh, appreciate how much you can get just by being there, you know, just by having the opportunity to observe, uh, you know, the great uh, leaders around you or that you're working with at your own firm or company. So mm -hmm. that's, I guess, what I would offer. I just want to bring up on that point, actually, Jennifer, post-pandemic, that, that need to be in the office, in the environment, to be seen, to you know, the, the, the younger generation, they need to be able to interact and, and watch what these great mentors are doing day to day. I mean, do, do you think that's we need to remember that? But given that some firms are still adjusting to the fully back to office hybrid, I, uh, there's a danger that that a lot gets lost if that hybrid model maybe continues. Yeah, you're exactly right. I don't know how to solve this problem. It's a thorny mm. one. There's mm. clearly benefits to people to working in hybrid environments or more work from home. But that loss, it's a it's it's like describing a loss to someone that they can't even imagine. You know, they they've never seen the gain part, you know. So um there are so many formative memories I have of working uh in investing especially especially in crisis uh of watching my uh, leadership at the time operate and work through that environment that you would you could never tell later and have it you know have the <laughs> same impact you know and many of um, many of the most interesting things that um, people have said to me that have stuck with me were in the moment and so there no one's going to call you and tell you that later you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no it's that spontaneity that you can't replicate yeah. remotely. Yep. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's very awesome. interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's dive into, we, we've, we've, we've started with where you are right now. Let, let's now kind of turn the clock back to your formative years. How, how would you, how, how would you describe your, your family upbringing, Jennifer, and uh, where, where did you grow up actually? 
I grew up on the East Coast of the United States and my parents were, um, my father was a sold medical equipment and my mom stayed at home for many years and then went to work when we went to school. Um, my father was a car nut. He would, uh, you know, he restored cars. He went to, he dragged us to car, you know, <laughs> events <laughs> or we spent all our time. Uh, but I think the thing I uh, remember most uh, is just the, um, the way our parents uh, dealt with us. I have two brothers and a sister. And so my, my father knew everything about cars, all cars. And so, but if you asked him anything like, um, well, how fast is a Ferrari? Look it up, look it up. And this was before the internet, as I, you probably remember, James. So we had a set of encyclopedias in the, in the family room and we spent a lot of time. We learned not to ask these questions, you know, because then you're going through the encyclopedia trying to find out how fast a Ferrari goes because he won't, he's not going to tell you. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, find out for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of that stayed with uh, all four of us. Um, so great. Uh, you know, my, and my mom, you know, similarly, she's all I remember is her is constantly being in motion or reading. She probably read at least 50 to 100 books a year, um, mostly spy novels and things like that. Uh, but but she was uh -huh. just a voracious reader. And you see that among, uh, you know, me and her other children today. So really, I, I feel like my parents really created just a very rich environment. Uh, we weren't rich, but but the environment they created was very uh, had something for everyone. And so um, it, it was, they, they also prized boredom. You know, my mother would always <laughs> tell me how valuable boredom was because you might, you know, it'll motivate you to find something interesting to do, you know? <laughs> so wow, okay. I use that lines with my kids now. <laughs> That's a, yeah, well, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, especially if the weather is bad and it's winter and you can't go out. I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of reasons to get bored, but that's a that's a very interesting uh, insight, though, into how how did you get out of you know what did that inspire you to do sports or, or follow other sort of hobbies and activities? Yeah, I think a good example was um, my father was a uh, was a salesman at a very large pharmaceutical company, and he was you know way down in the <laughs> that organization, um, but it gave him a lot of freedom, which is what he wanted. Uh, that company sponsored a scholarship for um, students to go abroad for a summer, so um, I applied for one and got it. This, according to my father, this was something of a caused a little bit of a stir at his company because generally, stu the students getting it were uh, more, you know, at the private schools. And you know, I was a public school kid, and um, so anyway, I got the scholarship and I went to Japan for a summer. And I think that's a great, uh, you know, I applied because my dad encouraged me to. Um, I went to Japan because my parents sort of, uh, neither one of them had ever been, but they they were sort of. Uh, encouraged us to be, um, you know, thinking broadly. And so um, that trip to Japan had a huge impact on me. And I think that's um, just sort of emblematic of the way my parents operated. And I think I've sort of, you know, carried that along with me since then. So yeah, I mean, that, you know, being introduced to a totally different culture at a young age, and, and yep. that's quite a, you don't forget those things. I mean, that, that really, <laughs> no. that really kind of, you know, it does, it does shape how you think about the world. Suddenly the world is not just where you grew up. There's yeah. a lot, it's a, it's a big world out there. <laughs> yes. I remember I had very, um, like shocking revelation when I first arrived in Japan, I, I lived with a host family in Tokyo. Um, the father was a, an important executive at a large company and he had two daughters, one my age. And he would, um, he spoke English well, and, uh, but he would use some Japanese words with me and um, in teasing me or, or um, talking with me. And one time I used the same word back to him one time and he was very offended and he like left the room. And then he came back later when he was not so upset <laughs> and he explained to me that, uh, young woman should not, you know, use that word back to a, an older man, uh, that that was, uh, you know, offensive. And right. I, for me, it was a, just such a, um, 
it was the first time I really understood that there's like the text of a of what's going on, and there's an important subtext that is unstated. And uh, I think that was when I really started to appreciate you better understand what the subtext is, you know, uh-huh. or you can get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a uh, that's a uh, again that's a uh, quite a lesson to learn, especially in a you know, an unfamiliar environment. And uh, again, a great, a great, that's, that that is character building. That's how you really learn how to understand, how to interact with with different people and and that that context that in in today's social media world, uh, you know, maybe context isn't quite as nuanced as it, perhaps once was. (laughs) But, you know, I have found, I was thinking, reflecting on our team, uh, thinking about talking to you, and I was thinking there are all sorts of strengths that I value. And I I generally encourage everyone, including myself, focus on your strengths. That's what's going to differentiate you from other people. That's what you, if you're going to, you know, accomplish something unique for yourself, it's likely because of your strengths. Um, But I was thinking the one thing I do prize that sort of runs across our whole team is this subtext. I think there are, um, I think uh, everyone on our team has a very sort of keen ear for subtext. So when we have, uh, for example, discussions with uh, some of the or teams that work on crypto projects, for example, um, they'll tell us a story. It, it usually sounds inspirational and like a great plan. And um, I feel like our team has a very good strength of hanging up the phone, getting together and sort of talking about what was said and what wasn't said, (laughs) you know, and sort of what we took from it. And I think I do think that's a really important skill in investing and probably in lots of other things, too. Oh, absolutely. What's not said is uh, equally, if not more important than, than, than what was actually said. So, yeah, again, I think that's uh, really and, 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 it, and it will obviously come to what Runa are doing and, and what you're seeing within digital. You know, this is still a nascent industry. So I think it, that's understanding that context is probably even more important in, a, in, in, a, in an emerging asset class that, we could still say digital assets still is uh, because this is such a new industry it's such a new technology so i think when you're looking at lots of different projects and, and lots of different managers uh you know that, that there's a lot to digest there for for the team yeah um, so after school you decided to study economics at brown university in uh when i was in eighth grade uh, my uncle who was a all-american lacrosse player at washington and lee which is a small college in the united states mm-hmm. um convinced me to go to the bob scott lacrosse camp in maryland bob scott was a longtime lacrosse player and coach and I did. And uh, in ninth grade, I started playing lacrosse and I was in on varsity in the ninth grade in part because of uh, I went to camp and <laughs> learned a lot more than others who were just starting. <laughs> like we played with wooden sticks back then. It was very old school um, <laughs> that. But uh, after playing lacrosse all through high school, which I loved, um, I sat through my brother was a was a very, very good football player, division one football player. Um, and the Brown coaching staff came to pitch him at our kitchen table. Uh, uh, he was a couple years older than me. And I sat through a lot of these pitches that he, that the, that coaches made to him. And, but the Brown team, he was less impressed with them than I was. I, was like, <laughs> I really like these guys. You know? <laughs> and that was how interested in Brown and the same recruiter, not, not football, obviously, but the same recruiter remembered me when my time came around and he helped me get in touch with the lacrosse coach. And that was how I got into Brown. So um, just a great kind of series of uh, good, good, good coincidences or fortune um, got me there. So you, you, you've, you've got your brother to thank. <laughs> I do. I do. And he reminds me of that still. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but Brown, I what I loved about Brown was uh, people like um, George Kennan would come or um, the president would come to speak. And, and we would be debating like 
I don't know. Should we go to the snack bar or should we go see that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I think students at Brown really don't appreciate like most students probably uh, what they have when they're there. But um, for me, Brown was just like a um, revelation. You know, I, I went, uh, I went to Poland over one summer and worked uh, when Pol in Poland when it was still behind the Iron right. Curtain. Right. Union. Uh, that was very eye opening, And just the, Brown sort of emphasizes breadth in classes rather than depth. And so it really, I think for me, was just a widening of my, you know, eyes uh, for just what a great sort of intellectual world there is out there and, and mm. otherwise world, you know, so. Yeah, I, so I, yeah, I, yeah and quite a contrast. So, you know, growing up, going to, to Japan at, at an early age, yeah. then going to Eastern Europe, yeah. yeah, they're very different. Obviously, very different, different environments, different cultures, and uh, it feels like maybe that that aspect of of, of living and uh, experiencing really, you know, yeah, different 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 societies. That's really benefited you in your career. Yeah, I mean, one thing like one struck me in Poland. This is obvious, I guess, but when I went to Poland, I lived, uh, you know, sort of in a dormitory style uh, mm -hmm. setting and um, with uh, other students, including Polish students. And one thing it really strikes me, and I think most people who have this kind of experience is people are the same. You know, like there's no yeah. like people are very, um, you know, every people have a lot in common all over the world. Uh, but the the social structures, the political structures they create can be incredibly different, and it has serious consequences to quality of life. And um, but the but the people are you know it's at the sort of individual level, it's very easy to connect and relate. Yeah. Even though the political structure, I remember one night um, I was walking home to the dormitory late from a party, and the police picked me up and took me to the police station. Oh, wow. And um, <laughs> yeah, that was. <laughs> That was alarming, uh, yeah. and just because I shouldn't have been out at that time of night, which I didn't know. But that was not. Is that right? Evil. Yeah. Oh, so, so they, there was a curfew. Yeah. Yeah. Really. So and wow. it was it wasn't a curfew for special circumstances. No. It was just always a curfew. <laughs> a blank a blanket curfew. Yeah. Absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. So, like uh, uh, like someone... medieval uh, medieval <laughs> England. Yeah, uh, and that, closing yeah. the city gates. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that was again just something that, I, and this this helped me later. But things things happened that I ne I didn't even think could happen. Like you're not allowed to be walking on the street, you know, at a certain time. I it never even occurred to me that that would be not allowed. And then I started to understand the difference between you know the United States and and yeah living behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah. Um, you then went on to get your MBA at, uh, at, at Wharton. Yeah. Uh, another important step for you and a probably was, was there much contrast to, to your experience at Brown or how did you find that, uh, that experience? If, if Brown was, was this for me visually, James, Wharton was this, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. um, and it was really more, it was about, it was like um, competitive analysis. Uh, it was basically to see the competition, I feel like. You know, it was, I, when I went to um, Wharton, it was 1990, and MBAs were very big at that time, especially in the United States. You know, uh, investment bankers were very prominent, and uh, they all had MBAs. And, um, and I wanted to know, like, what are they teaching them there? Like, what what is so important about uh, getting an MBA? I wanted to make sure I knew, uh, you know, what they knew. Um, so for a lot of it was just kind of, um, I don't want to say checking a box that doesn't give it enough credit, but it was it was learning specific skills that I thought would help me, uh, but also just checking out like what what's going on here, you know, <laughs> what's so special about this? <laughs> yeah, you had to, you needed to find out, and uh, yeah. did, and did that live up to your to your expectations? Well, in some ways, um, mainly it was. I hate to say this, but it is what. A lot of what happens at business school, I think, is a is a, a sorting before you get there of, um, you know, sort of a sorting for high potential people and then, um, you know, putting them in different situations. So I think it largely is um, 
I don't think getting an MBA is so transformative. I think it's more um, affirmative, if, if that makes any sense. Um, so in that way, it is a little disappointing because I, I think I wanted to learn a bit more than I did. Um, but it was, I certainly had some really good and important experiences there. But it was, as I said, it was more like this. I got some good skills. I met some great professors and students that I'm still in touch with. But that was it, more, other than that, it was sort of, yep, got got my MBA, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, well, and so when you struck out early in your career, uh, Jennifer, you you referred earlier, you worked at Leg Mason, I believe you were the, uh, the chief administrative officer. Uh, you then obviously then went on to become president and uh, CEO of uh, Leg Mason Capital Management. Uh, after that, you became COO uh, of Western Asset Management. Uh, what challenges did you face in those early years of your career and uh, how did you navigate those? When I... I started in asset management in 1986. That when Bill was uh, Bill Miller was my first boss, and that my first job was working as an analyst on an equity mutual fund. And at that time, this was the beginning of an enormous equity bull market and a bond bull market, both happening at the same time. As you know, for for decades after that, in the United States. Yeah, I just read something on that just the other day in the Wall Street Journal that 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 that. Yeah, that 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 uh, paradigm of uh, both equities and bonds moving yeah. in the same direction. Yeah. So fortunately, just by luck, uh, Chip Mason, who founded Leg Mason, he recognized asset management is important. Leg Mason was primarily a brokerage firm, and he was pivoting it to be an asset manager because he believed there would be tremendous growth there, which he was absolutely right about. So we. Turn, the firm turned to focus on asset management, and I was in the asset management unit uh, with Bill. And so it was a growth industry. So what I'm getting at, James, one of the challenges I faced is I started as a young person as in a growth industry where um, there's so much opportunity, there's so many new roles being created, there's so much new um, technology and process and approach. And so for a young person, I highly recommend being in a growth industry. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> it helps a lot. When, uh, you know, if you're, if you're trying to advance in your career and, mm. it, and you're in a mature industry, which, which asset management is a mature industry now, um, it's very difficult. Someone has to die or move away, you know, for, for you to, you know, yeah. advance. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In a growth industry, that's not true. There's new new things are being created all the time because the growth growth requires that. Um, there's uh, you know a tremendous emphasis on on innovation. Uh, you know, there's not a uh, you know there's a, a, a lot of cash available. You know, to fund uh, innovative things. So it's a completely different environment. And then through the course of my career, asset management went from a growth industry to a mature industry. So by the time I was in a leadership position. The name of the game was was to you know operational efficiencies to cut costs to lay people off you know to shrink shrink roles um, to shrink the firm in some cases um, and or or acquire to continue to grow grow by acquisition and that's a whole different environment it's a whole different set of skills and experiences so you you spend a lot of time in my view doing things that I don't like very much. Um, uh, rather than uh, in 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 the growth industry, so that that really seeing that whole trajectory really helped me. It really um, sort of helped me understand how industries grow and mature, and uh, and what's required at different stages. You know, for if you're in that industry. <clears throat> so yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, comparing yeah, expansion versus contraction. Uh, and you have a lot more latitude if you're in a yeah a high growth industry yeah. asset class. You can afford to take more risks. Mm -hmm. uh, That's right. What, was there anything that you? What is there anything else that you you learned in those in those years where you were? What, did you find that you were able to to really almost push push the envelope perhaps more than? 
perhaps you, you might have otherwise expected? Well, here's a good example of uh, my hubris, um, <laughs> but it was good learning for me. So Chip Mason was an experienced and very successful entrepreneur. He founded like Mason, grew it to a very large company. And his strategy when I was sort of early in my career was to make acquisitions in asset management to turn the firm towards that as a, as a growth engine, which he did successfully. He focused on sort of boutique firms. He acquired many boutique firms um, like Brandywine Global. He uh, acquired Royce Investments. He acquired Western Asset, where I worked uh, later when it was just a, very, a small company at the time. So he was making lots of small acquisitions and me being the newly minted MBA informed him, this is, why are you doing this? If you want to be in asset management, let's make a big acquisition, you know, <laughs> let's do something big. Um, and I really, a, a lot of his smaller um, asset managers never, never did much. You know, they, um, some of them, uh, you know, they, they, a couple of them actually did fail, but um, not, they were very small. Um, and most did fine, but a few like Western Asset grew, uh, you know, it was 3 billion in assets when uh, Chip acquired it. it. It quickly grew to 500 billion in assets. Um, so that that transformed like Mason alone, not to mention some of the other successful acquisitions that had high growth periods. And what I didn't understand, and when Chip never uh, deigned to explain to me, but he well understood was he was placing a lot of small bets. You know, he was managing his bets and his risk so that nothing, knowing that this was sort of a probabilistic exercise, that uh, if he placed a lot of small bets, there's a chance, a good chance that one or more of them could be big winners and the small, the small losers wouldn't, wouldn't hurt, him, hurt him very much. That was brilliant. That worked great. And, but me as the, you know, the sort of aggressive, ambitious MBA, you know, wanted him to do something much more dramatic that probably would have, you know, tanked the firm, but. <laughs> yeah, that's, like yeah. it was, um, that's, uh, you would have gone for the, the big yeah. headline buyout, whereas uh, this was a case of, no, no, let's take a more VC type approach. Yeah. Let, let's, let's hedge hedge our bets as it were and uh let's have a, a superstar then fantastic we just need one out of ten to work that's right that's right and you probably know but the you know studies say most acquisitions fail or they they fail to to produce any real value and uh i don't think chip was not one to sort of study the studies but i think as an entrepreneur and a successful you know business builder Intuitively, he he understood, I think, the way to allocate his capital to make sure that, it, you know, he didn't bet the company, but he got the result he was looking for. And he did. So, again, I think by, just by observing him, he never explained that to me or to anybody else, but, he, <laughs> but watching him, you could sort of uh, over time, I started to appreciate what his what his strategy was. Yeah, <clears throat> you almost by osmosis. Uh learn to understand really what what uh, these important people these mentors in your career really were, were were doing they had the they had the experience the longer obviously time in industry um, so really i suppose those actions spoke a lot louder than than words yeah absolutely and he told great stories. I mean, when I was um, rejoined, I, I rejoined like Mason after going to business school and worked for Chip for a while. And at the time, he was succeeding wildly. He was on the cover of Forbes. He was, you know, he was just doing fantastically well. And his partner was uh, the president of like Mason was his college roommate, uh, Jim Brinkley. And they would sort of sit me down and tell me, um, Jennifer, like in, you know, in the late seventies, uh, you know, after a, a series of acquisitions and, and, and a difficult market, you know, you, you think we're doing great right now, which is great. But he said, you know, we were laying on the beach on Sunday with our wives trying to figure out how to tell them it was likely Monday morning that we were bankrupt, you know, that we, we, we did not have adequate capital to meet the brokerage requirements. And um, they said, you know, there were many moments like that in our history. And um, and I had only been there for the kind of the, you know, the heady days of, of growth. 
and they were really trying to give me like some like grounding in things can get really bad. And of course they did eventually if the great financial crisis and others, oh, yeah. I got to see it from myself in the front seat, but I really appreciated them telling me that their stories from early on, because, uh, you know, it was hard to imagine them being in that position. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, that it, 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 you were only seeing a particular sort of set of conditions and, you know, like any sort of younger managers today that didn't live through the, the GFC. And I know we've had the volatility in the last couple of years, but you, it's, it's not just one market cycle. You've got to ride those waves. And, and I, that's obviously what you learned that, that, that there were a lot of difficult moments that, that uh, you weren't even aware of that, uh, did, did you was there any did that surprise you at all or was was that uh, again you just just being a little bit you know uh, optimistic about being in a you know a new a new career and uh, really not sort of seeing the 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 bigger picture i guess as you know there's a great image that's um i've seen on um you know online uh and it shows it almost looks like capillaries branching out, but it shows um, it shows where you're standing right now. There's many possible paths from where you're standing right now. But if you look behind you, there's only one path to where, how you got here. So the sort of the past looks like a straight, you know, or, or sort of one path, and the future looks like all these branching options. Mm. But that's always true, right? So for for Chip and Jim uh, in their past. Their future looked like many branching options, some of which included going bankrupt. You know, and there was, you know, they had a lot to worry about. But to me, looking at their, looking at them, and all that's in the past, it just looked like a straight line of success. So I think they were really trying to uh, give me the perspective that they had when mm -hmm. the future was this many branches of some success and some like total utter failure. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's quite scary when you kind of look at it in those way in those terms. But it's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the whole, there are so many variables that, that could impact future, future outcomes, future decisions, future fortunes. It, it, it's, it's how you deal with that. So that was that an important lesson for you back in those days, then presumably it was, again, another of those life lessons that you've no doubt adopted and uh you know that's shaped again how you how you run runa and uh yeah how you think about decision making generally speaking yeah it really it really came back to me when um there were moments in the great financial crisis and in the um, pandemic crisis in markets where in the great financial crisis i'll never forget this when after um Lehman and Bear Stearns and, you know, Merrill Lynch, after these enormous companies failed, which was unthinkable, it never, it, it was not on anyone's, I don't think, radar screen that those things could even happen um, as the whole financial system uh, went into crisis. I remember on a Friday afternoon with our team trying to figure out where could we put cash that we were confident that it would be safe one of the banks we were considering was Wells Fargo, one of the largest banks in the world. And we were not confident that our cash would be safe at Wells Fargo over the weekend. That's how bad it got. Um, I was, I remember for the first time being actually frightened at work. I, mean, I was, I was, I was worried about the social fabric of the world, you know, <laughs> because of the, you know, uh, disintegration of the financial system. Yeah. And that was, uh, so I think things can happen that you never imagine. And in fact, they happen all the time. Um, and so being, uh, you can't anticipate what they are specifically, but understanding, um, you know, that, that that's, you can't confidently predict, well, you know, Wells Fargo, that's going to, it's all, that's never going to happen. Um, so operating like that. But the, the other thing, the flip side of it, James, is, um, Another thing I learned, though, was there were there were moments in both crises where things looked pretty hopeless, where it looked like um, at least the part of the business that I was working in or responsible for might not survive or might have a catastrophic, you know, loss or event. And um, the the most important thing was to 
to, to keep going, to take the next step, do the next best thing that you can do. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and not even when I, there was at least one moment where I felt like, well, that's it. It's over. Um, and mm. uh, it wasn't. Two things mm. happened that afternoon that completely changed our situation. And I, there's no way I could have counted on that. But um, I think since then I learned just just keep going. <laughs> don't, don't decide it's over, you know, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Keep going until you, until you, you, can't. you, until you can't. I mean, I, I, and again, it, it, it's, it's very interesting because it, it, exactly what you've just said there applies to every sort of aspect of, of kind of operating in a, in a, in an elite environment, like sport and, you know, you've, you've talked about your brother playing Division One football. How many games, you know, do you watch where the team win in the last, literally the last second? I mean, it's, it, it, it is that, that you never, ever, you never stop until you can't. So it, it applies equally to finance as it does to sport, to, well, other professional areas of life. And I think it's a, it's, it's a really, really important lesson to, 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 to really just keep going. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things um, that I, that uh, my uh, partner, my co-founder, Max Williams and I do now, um, one of the things I learned from that is it's very painful. It's emotionally painful to be in that situation where you're failing, where you're, you're, there's an existential threat. And so in addition to trying to intellectually understand what's, what can I do here to, you know, to take the next step to improve the situation, you're also dealing with this emotional, you know, pain of, of what might happen. And so part of succeeding, you know, of, of enduring that environment is enduring the emotional pain. So for me, my poor husband, I find it helpful. Uh -huh. I tell him about it. And today, in you know, in our current Bruno Digital Assets, you know, we do talk about the, um, the, the impact of feelings and we read books about it and we discuss uh -huh. it ourselves uh, because it is part of managing um, yourself in order to, uh, you know, manage your investments. And I think um, recognizing it, putting it, putting a finger on it and talking about it helps to endure and manage and do do the right thing the logical thing and the the most the high probability thing that you can do uh and not not take the easy way out really which is to to decide because it's emotionally painful it's it's over you know mm, yeah 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 absolutely it's uh, a very important uh, quality to mm -hmm. to really hold on to i think for everybody in this in this industry and and really in any in any walk of life really it's it's that 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 perseverance and endurance it's uh can't be underestimated i i i wonder if i could ask jennifer just in your current role running runa what i mean what are you like if you make a wrong decision or if you miss if you miss something in the data i mean did you, do are you do you take it in your stride? Do you, do you, uh, how do you how do you how do you react to getting something wrong <laughs> in terms of your character? Would you say one is my my instincts in in a in a, uh, in a situation like that where I've done something wrong or something bad has happened uh, is to um, withdraw. You know, it's to go in my shell. That's my instinctual response that I have to manage. So um, while what I would like to do when I do something wrong is to withdraw and think, think it over, try to understand what happened and how I could avoid it in the future, what I generally need to do and which is more uh, effective for me and my team is to reach out to my team, to work with them, to figure out, you know, what, what happened? <laughs> how could we avoid this? How can I avoid this? Um, so that's what I try to do. Uh, when it when i don't want to so we have a, a nice process i think a good process developed by our other partner alex Bodie. Um, she's chairs our risk committee and she sort of systematically and regularly evaluates our performance our the risks that um 
are sort of forward-looking and backward-looking risks and sort of makes observations about them and not in a, in a sort of non-judgmental way, you know, but like, here are the facts, you know? <laughs> so I think that's a great discipline for kind of um, removing the, the, you know, the self-flagellation part of it and more yeah. focusing on what does the data say? Because as you know, James, this investing is a probabilistic exercise. Mm-hmm. So even if you're even if you're right, if you got the probabilities right, you still the outcome may still you know go against you. Mm-hmm. So part of evaluating yourself is trying to sort through what's a what's a mistake and what's a what's a an outcome that was you know um, you know did you mis misunderstand the probabilities or did it just go against you this time? And if you keep 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 going um you know you'll you'll get it right eventually um so that's that's something that is worthy of um where uh, analytics can help but also discussion helps too um, yeah but I, it's a quite a data driven aspect to to really just evaluating performance yeah i yes um and i'm i guess i one of the things i think that's important for leadership and for investing is there's so much that you can focus on. There's so much data and information and so much going on um, is to try to figure out what's important here. Like, what should I, what should I focus on? Keep it simple. Um, You know, so we do look at a lot of information, but then our discussion is trying to say, okay, yes, we see all that, but what, what should we take from this? Like, what's the one thing? Because really, we're only going to remember a couple of things anyway. <laughs> so like, what, <laughs> what's the most important thing to take out of this? So yeah. I, data sort of helps us uh, flush it out and make sure we don't, we're not sort of ignoring something that's painful. Um, but ultimately, I think it's the judgment of um, what's really important here. But, and so, uh, again, just thinking about how you interact with the team, and uh, is it fair to, it sounds like it's very open I, I, I wonder whether you think that's a quality of leadership that, that whether you're a CIO or CEO, but that willingness to be open with your with your team and and I, I guess what I'm saying is vulnerability. If I can, is that the right word? But just being open to inviting your colleagues to to discuss maybe a situation, a decision, a, an outcome that wasn't expected. Do, do, you, think yeah. that, do you think that's an important aspect of good leadership? Yeah, I think all, all leadership, I think, has to begin with trust, right? It mm. does, you, you may follow someone or I may follow someone that I don't trust, but I do so unwillingly, right? You're, you're, always, you're looking for the out, right? So, um, so, uh, you know, I, I tell people when they're looking at new jobs or coming out of college, you know, like, make sure you like see the management team of the company you're joining, because that's what you're signing up for, you know, to be more like them. That's the generally they're creating a company that reflects their values and their you know character. And that's that's what you're signing up for. Um, So um, so I think trust is so important. And also, um, I think this, uh, I think the, what you're saying, transparency is, helps with trust, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> also, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's important for the team to know, especially for me in my role, that um, when I make a mistake, that I understand that I did, you know, I think that helps them have confidence, you know, that, uh, that I'm uh, sort of seeing the world clearly and, and uh, taking action appropriately, um, if we're debating whether or not I made a mistake, I think yeah. that undermines trust. But that, 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 I think again that that that's it's vital that that if you're the head of an organization, that it's like in the military. If you're not at the front, making those decisions, leading from the front, showing your your team that you're willing to put your neck on the line and it's 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 okay to fail it's okay to be wrong and if you're not seen to be doing that how can maybe younger colleagues junior partners if they don't see you collectively you doing that they're not going to feel comfortable taking risks or, or making mistakes themselves so there's a positive aspect to to this absolutely yeah, I, I completely agree. 
and I and I think it's instructive too, right? It, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's just how do you respond? Yeah. Yep. I remember I had a really um, interesting moment with my uh, the woman who preceded me as the CEO of like Mason Capital Management, Kyle Legg. Um, she was uh, meeting with a client, and if something bad had happened, you know, it was the global financial crisis. We had, um, you know, difficult uh, conversations with our clients. And I was sitting in with her in a client meeting and the client was asking her very tough questions. And her answers were totally direct, transparent. She did not, she did <laughs> not sugarcoat anything. She didn't, nothing to embellish uh, to make us sound a little less bad or, you know, she, <laughs> Right. And, uh, when, you know, it was a difficult conversation, but I felt like the client left that conversation like, okay, mm. you know, we're, all, we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when when uh, the client left, she said to me, it, look, in the if you're the CEO, the clients clients need to know if they're talking to you, they're getting the truth. Like that, that should always be true. But yeah. like there's no there's no quibbling or or, you know, sort of sugarcoating. <laughs> yes. Trying yeah. to make it sound better than it is. Um, she thought that was so critical to maintaining, uh, you know, great relationships with clients, which she did. Um, and I really, that really struck me. I, I wondered, you know, I, so to your point very early on about being in the office, that's the kind of thing that I got to observe, you know, firsthand from someone who was masterful at it and to have her sort of affirm that to me, like, this is really important in the, in the CEO job. Uh, that was very, very, that stayed with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, again, that's another great insight into the, the journey that you've been on. Uh, just in the time that's remaining, uh, Jennifer, I wonder, what, what, how do you, uh, what, so how do you what, what's your approach to idea generation at Runa? And uh, also, what do you make of the current environment, regulatory? Uh, I know that uh, there have been some important decisions recently that have likely going to be very positive and, and, and potentially important tailwinds for the industry. I, I just, I wonder how you approach idea generation and what you make of the current investment landscape. One thing that's really useful is to have people who are very um, intellectually curious and, and very passionate about digital assets because mm -hmm. They're out there all the time trying whatever's new, like searching for, you know, some telegram bot that you can now trade digital assets with and whatever else, you know, our mm -hmm. analyst Ned likes to do things like that. And um, Alex is always trying out some new, you know, um, video game blockchain something or other. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're sort of doing that whether, you know, I want them to be or not, which uh, and it's incredibly useful because they bring back all sorts of interesting information and ideas. So I think it's that bottoms up uh, sort of trolling around. And mm. uh, for, for us, um, I think we love it. We'd be doing it whether it was our work or not. Um, so that makes it a little easier. But also, I think, James, I think it's the top down, too. I think that, mm. you know, we have to have we have to have insights. We have to believe things that other people don't believe to make money. And so um, it can't simply be uh, this sort of, um, you know, I think this is an interesting uh, little project and, you know, they're really going to go places. You know, I think there also has to be this sort of conceptual, more top-down um, thematic views about what's um, what's happening and why it's important and why people will make money from it. Um, so we do both. We talk about the sort of conceptual uh, top down and we and we bubble up a lot of ideas just from, um, you know, trolling around in, in all the different <laughs> places <laughs> uh, that uh, digital assets operate. So yeah. I think I think both are important. Yeah. And, and what, what what's your take on where we are at the moment? Do, do you if we look at the volatility that's been pretty dominant really for the last 18 months are you seeing positive signs maybe from a regulatory perspective i know that obviously there are, looks like there are going to be maybe we're a step closer to getting spot you know bitcoin etfs approved uh, what, what i wonder what you think of today you know there's a great john templeton quote that um Bull markets are born on 
pessimism, they grow on skepticism, they mature on optimism and die in euphoria. And um, if you think about how a bull market starts, literally the bull market starts at the worst, like at the low point of the bear market, right? <laughs> That's, you know, the tick, the tick up from the low point is the beginning of the bull market. Yeah. But when, when a bull market starts, <laughs> it feels so bad. It feels like everything is so bad. So by the time you know things are good, it, you're, in, you're in the, you know, optimism phase. You're in the maturing phase of the bull market. Yeah. So if you wait yeah. for that, you're dead. And, and markets pay a lot of attention to what happens at the margin. not So not the first derivative, but the second derivative, you know, the change in the change. So I think we're so bullish right now because I think the change in the change, for example, for interest rates in the United States, which, you know, affect rates globally, um, the, the, that that change is slowing or beginning, will begin to decline. Yeah, terminal. Um, yeah, yeah, terminal rate. Um, yeah. The... the you know, I, I think when BlackRock, when Larry Fink went on television and said we filed an ETF and we're using Coinbase as our surveillance partner, who's currently being sued by the SEC, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and so he said he called Bitcoin and digital assets, Bitcoin an international asset. I I said to the team, you know, on March second, two thousand nine, Bill Miller. Um, was sort of reading the news on Bloomberg, my boss at the time, during the, this is the worst part of the, of the bear market in the global financial crisis. And um, the FASB, the FASB changed the rules for banks, changed the accounting rules for banks, which was the relief that had been needed um, to sort of stop this slide. And so that came across the Bloomberg, across the tape, and he looked at us and said, well, they don't usually ring a bell at the bottom, but that's it, they just did. And uh, that was March 9th was the bottom. So he's right mm-hmm. about that. I felt that way. When I saw Larry Fink on TV, I was talking to Max and Alex and Ned. And I said, this is it. This is that. That rings the bell for me on mainstream adoption of digital assets. That It's a long road. It'll take a while to get there. But uh, BlackRock and Larry Fink sort of affirming Bitcoin as an international asset. And this is an asset class. That at the margin, that marginal change is huge and, and, and do you do you think that will have a ripple effect across across the asset class yes no doubt i think mm. i think the the brand you know blackrock's brand i think um, larry fink's credibility in the united states administration and um you know his ability to change you know the views of <laughs> of legislators and regulators on uh this market um, that that I think shifting the career risk from I think right now the career risk is why would you do anything in digital assets? I think when BlackRock has digital asset products, it'll be natural for the career risk will be on the other side. You know, why aren't you thinking about digital assets? Mm. Um, so I think that it's completely shift again. It'll take time to unfold, but I think it is that was it. I think that was a just a critical moment for digital assets. And I think everything has changed since that moment. And then on the, you mentioned regulatory at the beginning of this year, we thought that was the biggest risk we faced. And I think it was Um, now at the margin, I think regulatory risk is falling for the reasons you mentioned, you, you talked about them, the, the, it's clear the courts are going to, you know, put limits on uh, what the regulators are doing. And that, that is incredible. You know, I worked, you know, in 30 years in asset management and the, you know, the advice of every general counsel is don't, you do not want to get in a fight with the SEC. That is the last thing on earth you want to do. Um, but that's where the industry has been forced to go. And, um, you know, amazingly, uh, the industry seems to be winning. So that's a huge change at the margin. So I think all the changes at the margin are really important and positive. So uh, you wouldn't know it from the price action, though, in Widget James. It's <laughs> certainly not going up in prices yet. Yeah. But but no, these are marginal uh, changes, positive changes that, that uh, yeah, these things take time to, to, to filter through. But, but, but yeah, with the lights of uh, you know, BlackRock and, and, and I think you've seen with, uh, yeah, I, I know that Bitcoin, I think certainly we're still waiting for that real kind of kick. Uh, but I think it did kind of, uh, did go above 31,000. And uh, it, I think it's just waiting for that next, that next catalyst that, uh, I mean, wait, wait, do, what, do you, do you, 
I, I'm just I'm just wondering where you see Bitcoin because it's obviously it's the lead, it's it's the go-to cryptocurrency. I mean, do 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 you think how far could it go in terms of price? I I don't know, but mm. I do. I mean, I know the same <laughs> you do, where there's uh, you know there's many many millionaires on Earth and very few uh, very few available Bitcoin, and I yeah. I do think over time. It's all about adoption. You know, these Bitcoin yeah. and other digital assets, I think their most important attribute is their networks. And the 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 way that networks grow, it's all about adding that next node. And each each node has a exponentially positive effect on the network as a whole. Um, so I think it's all it's all about adoption. And so I think that's why one of the reasons BlackRock is so important is it will really accelerate that adoption curve. So where that ends up in price, I don't know. I certainly expect it to be higher than the last, mm. uh, than the previous high, but how high it goes in this bull market, I don't know. Um, mm. But it would be that up a lot from here. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, again, it's still really, if you look over the last couple of years, it's, I mean, it's come off its lows, as you say, but not yet really. Uh, if you look at, yeah, it's 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 been a little range bound in that respect it's uh who knows when we'll see it you know touching north of sixty nine thousand dollars you know that, that'll that'll be uh again a, a key a key moment to see what 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 more it could do in in terms of uh you know could it reach a hundred thousand and you know there are some out there that think it's going to be worth Five hundred thousand, if not more. I mean, it, it's all speculation, of course. But um, but but these are important developments that um, I think, in terms of you know liquid tokens that you're obviously investing in and specialising, these projects need to see that 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 clarity and uh, you know maybe maybe that reassurance, so that really more institutional capital comes in. Because that's what the institutional investors need to see is that 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 that, that clarity and uh, that they need that conviction. Yeah, we we read a great book called Technological Innovations and in Financial Capital by Carlotta Perez, and in it she sort of goes back through the last the previous five industrial ages or technological ages that she has, she's sort of identified since the industrial revolution, mm. and she identifies sort of natural patterns of of a maturing technological age. And so all the things you're saying are exactly right, that this is how the technology will mature. AI, you know, I would put AI in there as well, and mm. probably some some genomics <laughs> as well. You know, they, these, they'll go through a, a process which the, the corruption and the volatility and all the things we've been experiencing are experienced in every technological age. There's always, uh, you know, if you remember the oil barons of the early 1900s and all, this is all, it's we yeah. these movies have all been seen before, you know. <laughs> um, so it's a part of the maturing process, but it's also where the opportunity is. This is where the big appreciation will happen is in this immature phase as we get towards maturity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just to, just to wrap it up, Jennifer, I wonder, looking ahead, maybe at the next generation of leaders that will be coming through, the industry, and even if you were maybe to have a conversation with your your younger self when you were s striking out on your career, with what what advice would you would you give to either your younger self or to today's current crop of uh, of, of of young aspiring leaders? Uh, any any final words of advice that you would offer in the the, the world that we live in today? As you've already said, AI is becoming a lot more dominant now. I just wonder what the future of leadership could mean in that context. Actually, one thing I like to think about is uh, my daughter and I were in Rome this summer and uh, in search of her gelato place she wanted to visit, which happened to be right next to the Pantheon, and. Um, <laughs> It, buried in the Pantheon in a lead-lined casket is Marie Curie, um, and apparently she's the first woman that's there on her own merits, you know, not being a, a queen or something, but because of her, you know, amazing achievements. Um, and if you 
there's some great movies about her life uh, and books, um, but the, the obstacles that she overcame and that what she achieved is so incredible. So when I'm feeling a little put upon, you know, <laughs> like, uh, there's yeah. a, things are difficult for us, you know, um, <laughs> it really helps to think about uh, people like Marie Curie and others that are just, the, the obstacles they faced were just like, enormously like multiples higher than uh what i face today and so that i think i i, I like that perspective of thinking about uh people like that so i think that's one thing mm -hmm. the other thing is i tell people you know i'm a i'm a chartered financial analyst um i'm you know i took the cfa exam uh which now today it's a series of three exams and the fail rates are ranged between from i think sort of 50 to 70%. Um, so most people who take tests fail. Um, and then over three years, you know, almost everyone fails. So it's, <laughs> it's rough. Brilliant. Um, and I tell people uh, when they're starting the CFA, you need to ask yourself why you're taking this test. You need to answer that question because you will ask yourself that question about a thousand times in the next three years. <laughs> why am I doing this? You know? <laughs> Yeah. So I think you really need to find something where your answer to why I'm doing this, you have a lot of conviction about because that conviction will be tested. It will be tested no matter how much conviction you think you have. Um, so I think really finding something where you feel like this is important or this person is important and what the, their vision is important, whatever it is for you, but really finding something where you feel like I can I can believe in this. And for me, early in my career, that was Bill Miller. He, he was that kind of a visionary leader where I think many of us on his team really felt like he's worth it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't have my own vision, but I, I think his is really important. So that was that was enough for me for a long time. That's great. Now, again, great to get that inspiration. And uh, yeah, you, you've got to really, yes, have that fire that, that, that yeah. um yeah, you look at you look in the mirror, and you you still want that same goal that you've been questioning time and time again. It's I think that's a great insight, and um, it's been a real pleasure, Jennifer. It's really great to to hear about your career, your career path, your approach to leadership. It's been fascinating. Thanks so much for being my uh, inaugural guest on this podcast, and um, I wish you all the best for the rest of the year, you and the team. And look forward to keeping in touch. Good. Thanks, James. I'm looking forward to your future guests as well. Thank you very much. Yes, it will be coming soon. <laughs>